0: where the light goes. Illumination is used to create depth, effect, ambiance, to augment a narrative. What is light and what is dark? Who is light and who is dark? The terms are out of my control and language like light casts a long shadow. Both are classified as art in a broad sense, when manipulated and part of an immersive environment. I am brown and my brownness is spun into an illusion by the West, as in, who is light and who is stripped of humanity? Who is light and who is darkness? My darkness moves slowly up and down my body, formless and at the discretion of the viewer, Art that resembles misplaced terror in the psyche of whiteness. I look for symbolism in light, for a humanistic conceptual approach, a symbiotic relationship, and find only subject and artifact, light, and its refraction.
1: That's the voice of poet Alicia Pir Muhammad reading "Where the Light Goes." a piece written just for the latest issue of Field. It was announced last week that Alicia is the very worthy winner of this year's Nan Shepherd Prize. So a huge congratulations to her. And if you'd like to explore more of her work, just follow the link in the pop blurb to her website. So this month we're talking to novelist Kieran Goddard about his incredible upcoming novel, I See Buildings Fall Like Lightning. The book lovingly traces the relationship between a group of friends who have remained close since childhood. Central to the novel are thoughts on lost opportunity and fragmented community and I started by asking Kieran what the impetus behind writing the book had been.
2: It was uh, the opening of um, Lady Chatterley's Lover by D. H. Lawrence. It has this incredible opening passage which you know a lot of listeners and yourself might know but it has that you know we must live no matter how many skies have fallen you know it's this kind of really old school question that maybe art shies away from in some senses which is how do you live like how on earth do you live how do you make a life that's meaningful or meaningful enough at least and this group of friends all grow up together in this way that I think a lot of us can relate to where you make superheroes out of your friends right you you, you're the person who's going to do this and you're like this and this person is incredibly good at this and collectively we're going to have these bigger bolder more beautiful more open more free more transgressive lives than the ones we grew up um witnessing but then time passes and you know, against your, you know, against your wishes to some degree, you end up replicating patterns and rhythms uh, that you saw around you. You know, a lot of your ambition falls by the wayside and you end up living lives um, to some in some cases of quiet desperation and in other, in other cases, just normal lives. Right. And you're left in the aftermath of of your dreams. You're left in the aftermath of the lives you thought you might live. And the question then remains, what the hell do you do about that? How do you pick yourself up and create a life from the rubble, really? And each of the characters, as you say, um, takes a different approach to that to some extent. So you've got some who um, seek escape via kind of nihilism, addiction, and so on. You've got others who maybe turn inward into the sort of domestic unit, into the into the um, in, into the kind of codifications and comfort of love. You've got some who rally against the systems that they see as being oppressive to them and others who make kind of accommodation with that system and try and make that system kind of work for them. Um, But all of them are trying to essentially kind of work their way into a life that's bearable, you know, um, and the, the tensions that emerge between them, tensions that you would never have thought could exist between these people who have loved each other since childhood are really about the different ways in which they try and answer that question of how on earth do you live, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the life you thought you would have.
1: Kieran, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the way that class and community appear within the book.
2: Oh yes, I could, I could, um, for days, in fact, uh, <laughs> but, um, One of the things I was very aware of is when writers, not all writers, I must say, there are some great examples to the contrary, but when a lot of writers deal with, for want of a better word, working class communities, they tend to fall into like a couple of lanes, really. Like one of which is kind of, it's grim up north, um, you know, like flat caps, whippets, um, you know, and struggle, basically. Um, and, And another is a kind of, um a type of a type of inverted decadence maybe which is you know a, a depiction of co- of a community with like nothing to lose right so it's you know riddled with um disinhibition and you know overconsumption drug abuse drink you know whatever the case may be it's like you know it's like a it's like a 300 page party scene or something and there, there, are, there, there Those are not those are not unimportant characteristics, but they're really partial, right? It's like the communities that I grew up in and that I really want to honor, you know, and on that, you know, and I really mean honor in that sense. You know, these were also communities like absolutely suffused with like wit and with love, like with, with linguistic ability like that's off the scale. You know, the speed, the speed and love of language. And, is it, you know is there communities with depth of thought with depth of connection and also very strange you know communities with their own like mythos with their own private religions with their own with their own symbolism um and i wanted to kind of reflect that especially in the kind of language of the book like i didn't want to deny these characters a kind of lyricism you know which i think is you know which i think often is denied to you know characters from certain backgrounds there is this legacy of the kind of Blairite sickness of, you know, social mobility as well, which was this kind of, you know, pernicious myth we were sold um, that, you know, I don't think it's necessarily coincidental coincidence or that like the national lottery was, was, was kind of launched during that period. And the, you know, this sense of like the big finger coming out of the sky and saying like you, you know, it's you, you get to have a different life. Um, your life has been changed. And um, but underlying all of that was like if you're good enough if you're lucky enough if you're skillful enough if you're ruthless enough you can you can you can rise out of your class but crucially you can never rise with your class you know that was the that that the, that was the that was the change like forget this idea of rising with your class you might be able to rise out of your class and and that creates an, an interesting type of like psychic spiritual precarity in people where there's there's a violence done to them by the system perpetually every day but there's also a kind of residual unwillingness to burn that system totally to the ground because why would you ever burn down a system that may, that you may get to win in you know that them uh so that so there's that kind there's that kind of sense and also i just wanted to be honest about it i didn't want to create characters that had really simple like political morals um, because they simply don't exist, you know, It's like, to pick one example, you talk to um, a lot of progressive, like, or self-proclaimed progressive writers, authors, thinkers, you know, and they will depict, like, the, the working class's relationship to the state, for example, as one of, like, universal positivity, you know, like, you know, let's have more state provision, let's do this, let's do that, and yes, that is true, you know, communities I grew up in saw the state as a really important um, part of of the kind of minimal types of security that they were able to access but they also saw it as the purveyor of violence because it was a state that locked you up it was a state that knocked your door and took your kids it was the state that told you you weren't paying taxes correctly so at every level level there is a complexity to the way that um class um manifests on a per on, on, on the level of the per- of personhood and I just wanted to be comfortable with that in the book and actually, you know, put my own, you know, rather polemical politics to to one side, actually, and get in the mud with the complexity of how these things, as they say, have taken emergent form within an individual. Really struck
1: me about the book from early on was the choice to unname the city and mm. this kind of facelessness to it in that sense. And I was wondering if you could talk about that choice and this impact on community that you were referring to.
2: Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. Nobody's asked me that before. Um, (laughs) um, And I think that my, the reason I did that is I wanted to give a strong sense of like two places, really the place, the place where you grow up Um. And the other place, the other place that has this center of gravity, you know, the center of cultural gravity, the center of economic gravity, this uh, this place that in some senses kind of embodies progress, right? Because um, on a personal level, because of course we grew up, one of the other myths we grew up with was to succeed means to leave. You know, that that was such a big part of that, you know, oh, you made it out So if you did well, that means leaving the place that made you, you know, and just think about how incredibly toxic that is as an idea. It's like, that's what winning means. It means leaving the people you love, right. And going somewhere and going somewhere else entirely. So I wanted to give this sense of like, yeah, this, this kind of. Yeah. Gravitational pull of like a big, the the big city, which to some extent is London, but I've, I've unnamed it, right. It's London within a UK context. Um, And then I wanted the other place to be an other place that's not London, you know, that exists, you know, in the shadow of or in relationship to and fights for its own distinctions and characteristics in, you know, in the face of that. And partly that's because, you know, I wanted people to be able to relate to that dynamic regardless of where they pictured um, the other place to be, right? Because, we've all got our place, you know, we've all got our version of that place. But also it's because I want, there's a level on which this book is a book about myth and about, you know, it has a mythic structure on some level, um, which maybe we can come to, I don't know. But there's something about being unafraid of generalities. You know, there's always this idea, you know, this kind of like long legacy of like, I guess, post-romanticism, but also you know, through to like the beat poets or whatever, that you name things, you know, that there's a a kind of virtue in the specific. And I sort of think, well, I agree with that to an extent, but I also think there's a virtue in the the archetype.
1: There's this passage that one of the characters, Shiv, in one of her chapters, she says, uh, and that's what you carry in the end, isn't it? The whole mess of a person, all the broken bits of them, even the bits that cut your hands, the bits you'd rather throw away and it uh, it really struck me it really that section there that it felt like the imperfection of the relationships was essential to the book
2: yeah yeah absolutely and shiv Shiv in particular is is the character who recognizes this like again and again so her for your listeners her her partner um patrick is to some extent the idealist um you know of of the group and and their relationship is also a kind of ideal to some extent. And her, Shiv's sense perpetually is that's not how life is, you know. um, The real, like real, like the real love, like the, you know, the real love, the real connection comes in taking the totality of a situation and the totality of a person, which includes, you know, a type of knowledge, that can often be uncomfortable, you know, because it's a knowledge that we are flawed, we're sinful, you know, we make mistakes, um, we're imperfect, we're riddled with hypocrisies. Like we're we're all, you know, we're all that type of subject ultimately. And I wanted to give this sense of her um, almost relentless um, dedication to that idea that you love people in spite of. Or maybe not even in spite of, maybe even partly because of their, imp- you know, their imperfections, because there's a kind of resistance of perfection as a mode in that, right? And and her, yeah, and her dedication to that, I think, creates this um, bonding force that kind of often stops things falling apart.
1: It felt to me that um, you had personally had a lot of love for the characters that
2: you've created here. Did that
1: get in the way at any point?
2: Uh, yes. Of course, I <laughs> didn't think it did. But, um, by the t- <laughs> but by the time it got to, you know, my absolutely incredible editor um, who, you know, I've worked with for, for long enough and known um, that, she, you know, she knows me well as a person as well. So there were, there were definitely parts where it became clear that actually, I loved this character or that character so much that I would give, I was giving them attributes, ideas, turns of phrase, uh, language, language that, that was actually kind of dissonant with them as a character, right? It's just, I wanted them to feel that I wanted them to, you know, have access to that. What was
1: it you saw offering the characters hope?
2: Firstly, there is the, there is the basic acknowledgement throughout that beauty exists right that there is a life beyond the material and that most people have an instinct for that on some level that often there's a sense in life that you're sort of stood on a shoreline or something and behind you is your life and it is hard and it is full of like endlessly repetitive necessary tasks and And then in front of you, there's another sort of sense, which is much more difficult to explain, but feels like a different relationship to time, a different relationship to feeling, a different relationship to being. And you're kind of forever just turning your head between one and the other, you know, um, trying to manage that sense of what it feels like to be alive. And I just wanted to. So the first point is that I had to make sure that they could look in both directions, you know the, the both the characters could look in both directions from that vantage point. And the second, which is a slightly um a slightly more esoteric point really, is is this kind of like philosophy of surprise. And that's something I've been thinking about on a personal level for, for quite a few years now. And it's just you never know. Right? You just never know. Um like you don't know what what might happen in an hour you might you don't know what might happen tomorrow and you certainly don't know what might happen in a year um and just give me one more day you know it's like things can be really really bleak sometimes but it's like let's talk again tomorrow you know because things might be a bit different and i'm not in any way suggesting that there aren't particular types of circumstance that circumscribe Quite predictably, <laughs> you know the limits the limits of surprise and the limits the limits of change, but they can't contain it. You know they just can't contain it. So there is this, yeah, this it's it's about a relationship to time, really, and this sense that you just never know. And so even at the darkest moments, you know, I don't, no spoilers in the book, but there's points where I think every character, in some way, you know, abstractly or otherwise looks the other character in the eye and says, you just never know, man. You just never know. Let's do another day.
1: I See Buildings Fall Like Lightning is published in February 2024 by Abacus Books and is a huge recommend. So keep your eyes peeled. Thanks go to Kieran Alicia, and to poet Nassim Rebecca Asal too for reading us out now with her beautiful poem, Afterlight, which you can also find in the latest issue of Field. See you next month.
3: It's autumn and there's war again, right at our fingertips. We've trapped three mice in tiny prisons and taken them far from home, only for crows to snatch their little lives. The roads sliced between regiments of tenements are flooded with dying leaves. The earth uproots itself and clings to our boots. TikTok tells us that more mirrors will remind us of summer, so we fill our room with glass. We can't move now without crashing into ourselves. We see ourselves sleep. I see myself dream. Can't stop seeing myself. I can't stand the truth of who I see. We only make soup, butternut, carrot, pumpkin, The pot's bubbling orange are small suns that have migrated to our kitchen. We are warm again, for a moment. We light incense and let vanilla smoke out spiders. The moon is sick and so are we. Our faces paling, waning pearls, waiting for clear, sharp nights when we pour outside to offer ourselves to the star's cold hearth, arms open, bared collarbones, shivering. I can't tell afternoon from night. We gather pomegranates from Asian shops on Duke Street and hoard them in the fridge. Each day we pick one, bring it to our marbled counter, cut, peel, scratch and gnaw into their bodies with the tips of our knives, split seed and flesh, eat with drops of sunset dripping down our arms, memories of light
0: trickling through our crimson hands.